0: This is 20 by 20, a podcast from Newcastle University's School of Architecture, Planning and Landscape, where we ask leading architects, urbanists, designers, and thinkers to reflect on the ideas, inspirations, and interests that shape their practice and their views on the present and future of architecture and cities. It's 20 questions in 20 minutes with me, Owen Hopkins. Can you tell us who you are, where you're speaking from, and what you do?
1: I am Marina Tabasum. I am an architect practicing in Dhaka, Bangladesh. I run an office. Uh, I'm the owner and the principal of Marina Tabasum Architects, which is based in Dhaka. And this is where I'm speaking from also. I'm also the academic director of Bengal Institute. Uh, So basically, that's it. Can you
0: talk a bit about how you got into architecture? What drew you into the profession and the route that you've taken to where you are now?
1: I come from a family of doctors and engineers. So it's either everybody's a technocrat in one form or the other. So it was expected that I'll be either a doctor or an engineer. And I was interested in neither of these two. I was always very, um, very much drawn to things creative. And, and so I was always searching for what other options are there. I had not much idea about architecture, but once I finished my high school and I had to decide something, I think it was my dad who told me, why don't you try architecture? And that was how I sort of got into it. Uh, we had to, at, at that time, we only had one school In Dhaka, so you had to go for an admission test, which mean meant that students from all over Bangladesh used to come and sit for a test to be able to get into uh, the School of Architecture, and there were only fifty seats. So yeah, I I really had to work very hard to be able to get that uh, one of those seats, and I I became first in that admission test. So I kind of got into architecture with flying colors. So that was not so bad.
0: When I was researching this interview, I found a quote of yours where you say architecture is like cooking and that you begin a project by uh, looking for the ingredients. I I really love that analogy. And I was wondering, could you talk about how you find those ingredients? And and I guess to continue that analogy, how far you follow a recipe or Mm -hmm. how far do you improvise?
1: I mean, cooking and architecture for me is quite similar because... I mean, if you see cooking, let's say Italian cooking or even Indian food, Chinese food, every uh, food has its own uh, uniqueness, uh, their sense of it, taste, everything. So there is a certain kind of identity uh, that is embedded in the way it's cooked. The, the smell, the fragrance, the aroma, the spices, everything. So, you know, when since I'm practicing in Bangladesh, from the very beginning of my practice, that's what I've been looking for. What are my ingredients? What is my cooking? And so that's why when I get a project, um, quite often I'm looking for uh, what is it that I will be cooking with. So, and, and the ingredients you can find basically from the site, especially from the context, from the program also at times when you reprogram the program, you get can really find something. And then the geographical location, the climate, even the culture, uh, the history, even for the people like the beneficiaries or the clients or the community for whom you're building. All these things gives you certain clues and, and certain elements that then you can take and really start the cooking. I don't know if there's any recipe as such. I think the recipe... (laughs) I formulate as I go along. But that's what I call the process, you know. So you design the process. And when you design that recipe, you never know what the food is going to be. But at the end, you know, there is a focus and, and, and it has to be something which is not overcooked or undercooked, but it has to be absolutely in the perfect shape.
0: Well, a, a project that, that, that is the kind of the, an example of a perfectly cooked set of ingredients is the Baita of Yame Mosque in Dakar, which is you know incredibly rich, and powerful project. I've only seen in, in photographs, but the, you know, from them, you can just see that, extraordinary effects that you've created from very simple materials, brick, concrete, and of course, the the use of light. Could you talk a bit about how you approached this project and how you dealt with the relationship between a very particular site and the mosque as a building type with a very long history, of course, and I suppose also the fact that this for you was a very personal project as it was commissioned by your grandmother in memory of your mother
1: well the project it started in 2006 actually uh, that's when my grandma, my mom passed away in 2002 and then the next year one of my aunt passed away so two sisters back to back you know so my for my grandmother it was quite a difficult time because she lost two of her daughters And for me, obviously, going through this um, grief of losing my mother with whom I I was very close. And, you know, you always feel like your parents are there, like sun and the moon (laughs) and the air that you never know how to deal with it. So I kind of was in a in a kind of a low point in life. And I feel like my grandmother probably understood. And it was a sort of a healing process for both of us when we started working in this project. Of the mosque, uh, this is an area which is in the northern part of Dhaka, which was, which at that moment in 2006, it was very much a village-like place where there were farmlands, people were still uh, kind of agrarian in many ways. Uh, it was not part of the Dhaka City Corporation, so um, so it was not included, um, and for that reason, there were not many facilities that were there, so there was no no mosque in that sense. So. Uh, So my grandmother owned a lot of land in that area. So she decided to donate a piece of land for the mosque. So that's how the project began. And and she kind of really invited me to come and have a cup of tea with her. And then she very formally told me that I want you to design this project uh, and I want to build this mosque. And she asked me about the funding and what would be the cost. And obviously, I had no idea about that at that moment. But of course, that place was, in a way, going through a transformation because the city of Dhaka, as you know, is one of the fastest growing cities in the world. And the density is enormous. So the city was pushing towards the north. So I knew that at at some point, this whole transformation will take place where from a very village-like atmosphere, it will turn into more more of a settlement. So when I started building the project, there was no buildings around it. It was just a site. Uh, but I had to kind of really imagine that what it, the scenario is going to be like, because there is no planning as such. So it will be very spontaneous. There will be small plots and mostly migrants from the outs- outside of Dhaka who are coming with a minimum amount of money can secure a small plot will be starting to build. And since it was not within the city corporation area, you don't need to have a permission. You just can get a permission from one of the chairmen of that area and you can build. So um, very unplanned growth. So that's the way the site was. And so I basically wanted to position it in a way that it was a a building which uh, was an order in a chaos the chaos wasn't there yet but i <laughs> anticipated the chaos so i decided to bring an order so that it can generate uh, or you know create that powerful presence in that locality and it it and also t- try to create some spaces which would otherwise you know you know that in, in a densely dense neighborhood you would not probably get a small space to for people to gather so after having the mosque i tried to create a certain kind of urban scale, small spaces where people can come and gather and sit and, you know, spend some time uh, bringing a little bit of an urbanity into that little site that I had. So basically, those were my issues and concerns. And and I tried to address that. And also, um, not making a building that looks out and about, but it was more looking within and inside. So that's why you see that the prayer hall and everything is much more introvert looking within and in a way that also goes with the idea of connecting with the divine so so I, I would say that all these things kind of come together and then created the mosque uh, as you see it now.
0: And it won the Aga Khan award in 2016 and you know, it's been a hugely celebrated very widely published project and the result of that is it it exists I suppose now in kind of two spheres there's the specific location, it's sort of materiality, and then it's there's a separate existence or related but, but separate existence in, in media and in, in discourse and has a, a separate set of meanings in that sphere. I guess this kind of separation is, is nothing new really, but I guess with the advent of digital media, it takes place at, at a great speed. I mean, is, is that a description that, that you recognise? And, and if so, how do you feel about it? Do you see this as a as good thing, bad thing, is it useful? Is it something that you find frustrating?
1: You're very right that it does exist in two different realms. One is the, the practical, uh, physical realm where uh, we the mosque is going on with its regular activity. And, you know, I'm not very much uh, connected to that, but quite often I do get calls like, we need to fix this or that. So that's the reality that exists. Uh, um, but yeah, but, the, but, the, but it, it, it has its own life and it's going on quite well, I think. I think the, the most uh, interesting part is that you get more and more people coming to the prayer, uh, prayer hall nowadays To And we cannot give them enough space. So that's also another concern. But at the same time, yes, as you mentioned, that it exists also in a philosophical uh, digital realm where people do um, try to take out, you know, try to address the values, which I, I think is quite fine um, in the sense that it addresses a certain values or certain ideas that is very much embedded in Islam. And I try to address that without, I mean, I think, for me, at that point, when I was starting to design and researching as I was, you know, looking for the ingredients and I kind of went back to the very beginning of mosque and I questioned what is a mosque. And I found um, the Prophet's Mosque, which had absolutely nothing but just a, uh, just a house form, which was elongated or enlarged to accommodate a congregation, there was nothing more than that. It was all about the religion was promoting in terms of values, in terms of uh, human values. And so that was, for me, the most important part. And, you know, in 2006, it was right after 9-11, we were still in the wars of um, Afghanistan and Iraq and all that. Islam and Muslims were being questioned. You know, so we were in a point in time where you question what do you identify with? So I was, that was my first or probably the most important question in this project was what do I identify with? Is it the domes and the minarets? Or is it the spirituality that, uh, or the human values that religion basically talks about? And for me, that uh, was much more an important factor that it is the spiritual element that is far more important than uh, the symbolic values. So that's why you don't see any symbols. I tried to get rid of all the symbols so that uh, it's a space where you come and it could be a place for solace, it could be a place of refuge in a very dense city, uh, or it could be a place for prayer and contemplation. So I tried to re-question or I, I, I tried to question this whole idea of a mosque in our present context. And, uh, and if that it becomes a discourse, I'm fine uh, <laughs> to have it that way, I think.
0: You've uh, talked in the past about how you see the act of design is changing, becoming less about form making and becoming more about a process of dialogue and engagement. And I guess it's the idea that architecture is something that is increasingly practiced with rather than for people. I wondered if you could expand on that and Describe how you see it manifested in, in your work.
1: The reason I, fi- I think that the process is much more important than uh, the final object is because uh, it comes out of the context where I practice from. And where I practice, um, especially uh, you know architecture as a profession, is only um, catering to the 1% uh, of the Dhaka population, even not within the Dhaka I think there's only a certain amount of people who can afford to pay the services, pay for the services of an architect as a service-rendering profession. But in a country of, let's say, 150 million, a profession to have only serving a very small people or or a group of people just doesn't seem like a sustained uh, way of practice. So that's the reason I started questioning, like, who are we serving? And basically that's when I um, most of our projects then started looking out of Dhaka and more about the community. Even the mosque project you talked about, that also addresses community because we engage the community during the process of building and designing. And so it became far more about creating something together with people when we go to the villages because you know the idea of an architect as a professional, is non-existent when you go out of Dhaka in the villages or even in small towns. So I think it's important for us to recognize that and to be able to become a profession who addresses not only this 1%, but also the 99 other percent. And that's why it was important for me to develop the processes. Because in an office, when a client comes to you, you know the format. It's already established. Uh, they come with a program, you design it, you give it to them, building gets built. But when you're going out of that comfort zone, when you're going to the villages and telling people that you are somebody who designs buildings, for them, it is an idea which is non-existent, because they do their own buildings. But obviously, there is a lot of need, because people are moving from the vernaculars to much more of a brick houses. So When you talk about housing, you need to give them the knowledge of how do you build with a brick, which they do not know. So quite often you see these very poorly built structures, almost shack-like, you know, it doesn't have the right kind of light ventilation. And so we feel that it's important for us to be available to them, to be able to give them that knowledge, which we have and to be able to make ourselves and our knowledge and our ability and creativity as a designer uh, to people.
0: You've just returned from uh, with your students, I believe, from working on a project um, in the Rohingya refugee camps. Could you tell us about that?
1: It's a very new project that we just started. It's, uh, well, not really only students, but we definitely have volunteers who will be working in the projects. But It's a a commission of our office, uh, MTA. We we are working with the World Food Program. Uh, There are many UN agencies uh, who are helping, uh, like UNHCR, there is IMO. And World Food Program is basically focusing on the food. And um, so they have many outlets all around the camp. It's about 1 million people living in the camps. Um, It's one of the largest uh, in the world as a refugee camp. So... World Food Programme basically uh, gives them food, but they have these places they call e-voucher outlets. So they don't want the refugees to get the feeling of being refugees. So they want them to have a good experience. And for that reason, they have created this credit card because the refugees are not allowed to have money. Um, so they have these credit cards where they call it e-vouchers. And so they have credits in it according to the rationing that one is allowed. And, and so they are allowed to come to a kind of a, almost like a super shop where they have different kind of food available, like rice, mostly dry ingredients uh, where they come and collect it. Uh, and then they, and there's also some fresh food corner. They have fish and chicken, which uh, WFP is constantly adding. So the idea is to build a few of these uh, e-voucher outlets. They also have these aggregation centers, what they call in the host community. Host communities are actually Bangladeshis who are living around the surrounding areas. So these are mostly about agriculture, food production uh, by women who are living in that area. So women do the food production, uh, agriculture, and what what farming that they do, basically that comes to the e-voucher outlets for the refugees to be able to buy uh, from them. So basically it creates a, a local economy also for the locals. It's really a fascinating and interesting project.
0: I wanted to ask about climate and climate emergency. Firstly, about your approach to climate in, in your work, how you go about responding to it. Uh, and secondly, uh, I guess the, the more on a f- more sort of philosophical level, the broader role that architecture has the potential to play in making something that can actually connect the very, very local to a set of global conditions?
1: Climate change definitely is one of our pressing issues in Bangladesh. By 2050, we are expecting one metre sea level rise. And by the end of the century, there will be two meter sea level rise. And which means uh, probably almost one third of Bangladesh is going underwater, especially the mangrove forest, uh, Shundurbon, which is the largest mangrove forest, is going to be completely inundated. And so these are real concerns. And we already see that when you go to the coastal areas, you see that the saltwater system and the sweetwater system is kind of, um, the saltwater is more coming inland. So you see the diversity even in the crops, and especially even in the fishing industry and everything, you see those changes, it's already there. The land and, and, you know, the entire system of the Ganges and the Brahmaputra, uh, when it comes to the Bay of Bengal, it's a very dynamic system. It's one of the most dynamic systems in the world. So it moves quite a lot. So you see the erosions and the sedimentation. These are becoming far more um, difficult to address nowadays. So we've been working in the coastal areas in Bangladesh for the last three years. Uh, So we've done a couple of research. Now we have created an interesting uh, modular mobile home from our office. And we are working with basically architects and geographers, uh, engineers. And we've started doing this project, which we call uh, Kudibari, which means tiny house. So these are modular mobile structures, which people can move from one location to another because of the dynamic movement. Uh, So these are really $200 projects, not really a large amount, but focused towards people who are landless. So there's a lot of landless people, I would say ultra low income or almost no income people. Uh, So they basically live off the land and they do not have any means to build a house or a proper shelter in that sense. So those are the people we are targeting. And the idea is when they need to move because of the movement of the land and the water, Uh, They can take the structure, take down the structure, which is very lightweight and very easy to build. And they can move from one location to another. So uh, we've built a a couple of these and we plan to build maybe about 100 this year and also monitoring how people actually adapt to it. So those are, you know, as architects, these are certain concerns that we have that we need to really focus on people who, who has not, who has almost zero carbon footprint, really. And they're the ones who are suffering, and it is just um, an enormously unjustified way of uh, the way the entire world uh, deals with this climate change. So uh, we really feel that you know we need to do more. So I feel that architects can really do a lot, especially you know when you are choosing a material like we are, you know, you know concrete. We love concrete as architects, and do you know that concrete is the second most consumed item in the world after water. It's not even food. So food comes third. And, you know, the cement is, is contributing to almost 8% of the greenhouse gas emission. And so when we as architects choose the materials we build with, Um, we need to really take care of what we're... So there's a lot of responsibility. The entire construction industry is responsible for a a large amount of this uh, climate change, the amount of extraction that we do, especially steel and and all of that. So I think as architects, it's very important for us to be aware of these uh, materials that we work with. I think we also need to look into new materials, the amount of waste that is being collected in the entire world, What do we do with that? Uh, Is there any possibility of using it um, to be able to close the uh, cycle where you give it back to the earth or make it, you know, to sink it back? So there are so many, uh, I think, the practice of architecture, especially in the 21st century, needs to be collaborative, where you try to find different materials which are not really um, adverse to the climate but uh, addresses all the pressing concerns that we have. So collaborative new materials and also um, looking into uh, the vernaculars also, I think is important. I'm not saying that we go back to the uh, past, you know, the values that vernaculars um, actually promote. It's about locality, you know, sourcing from location, you know, looking into the local technologies and about this idea of being much more harmonious to the environment. So those are the issues I think architects must really look into. And how much do we really need to build? (laughs) You know, I know, I mean, at times I feel like um, it's probably going against the profession, but if it's not necessary, then should we really build as much? That's also something I think we need to question.
0: Well, maybe that's where we should draw things to a close. (laughs) Marina Tavison, thank you very much.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much.
0: You've been listening to 20 by 20, a podcast from Newcastle University's School of Architecture, Planning and Landscape. Stay tuned for more episodes, write a review or give us a rating and be sure to follow us on your preferred podcast platform.